This week, I sat down with Carrie Schuchert, a co-founder of the House of Peace. Their mission is to provide both physical and spiritual shelter to victims of war in the small healing community of their home. In addition, they work with their local community to provide an education for peace and to inspire a moral awakening. The House of Peace has been welcoming refugees into their home since 1990. They have helped numerous families who are victims of war with both their physical and mental wounds. If you would like to learn more about the House of Peace and how you can help, go to houseofpeaceinc.org. Carrie and I discussed topics ranging from refugee rights, the current immigration climate, the international refugee crisis, and social activism. In addition, we discussed how to develop empathy for refugees through human interaction. So, without further ado, please enjoy this podcast with Carrie Schuchert of The House of Peace. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Can you explain what The House of Peace is and what your organization does? Sure. So The House of Peace is a small therapeutic community, which was founded in Ipswich uh, 30 years ago, 1990. And the mission of The House of Peace is to give welcome and shelter, safety, security to people who are victims of war, refugees who have been uprooted by war, and also in the last 15 years or so to provide very creative and therapeutic housing for young children that have been severely wounded in war. And our task of offering hospitality to refugees has at the core community life with other companions willing to do this work, some of whom have uh, special needs or otherwise called disabilities. So we live together in a community where people in need of special care are giving special care and working together for the creation of a healing environment for refugees. And we work in the realm of social justice for a moral awakening, not only to serve victims of war, but to work for the abolition of war and weapons of war as well. Okay, so when did you first become aware of refugee issues and the refugee crisis? And can you explain your story um, in becoming involved with refugee issues? So I am, like countless others, a product of the so-called Vietnam generation. And after the so-called end of the war in Vietnam, though we know it never ends, there are still people dying from that war through Agent Orange, through unexploded ordinances, landmines, and so forth. But in 1979, there was a huge exodus of boat refugees from Vietnam, as well as the starvation of people in Cambodia. I was living in a community in Pennsylvania, part of an international movement of uh, friends gathered to offer uh, community life, to, to live in community life, again, with some people who were otherwise labeled handicapped. So it came to me that in my own family, within the larger extended family and community of Camp Hill, I would like to offer my own motherhood and creation of family healing environment to refugees from Vietnam. So in 1980, two teenage boys from Vietnam came to live with me, followed later by the two younger brothers and older sister of one of them. And in the 10 years between 1980 and 1990, I observed that the magic of the relationship between people with 
so-called disabilities and refugees who had lost everything or being the ultimate handicapping condition, that that chemistry, that that interaction was so healing, was so creative, so productive, so uh, enhancing of relationships between um, these two segments of people. So in a rather unexpected um, flash of uh, that still small, not so small voice within, it came to me to um, attempt to establish a community where people could live together, some of whom would be refugees, some of whom would be people that would help in the healing process, those people being especially gifted for hospitality. So we began the House of Peace as a nonprofit corporation looking to the area outside of Boston where there was a large refugee population and uh, agencies trying to work on resettlement of refugees where on the North Shore there is, as you know, the healing environment of the ocean and in my case also a Waldorf school which is very compatible and important in the educational needs of my kids so we came to Ipswich, to the now almost 300-year-old house, the Rogers Manse, to begin this community endeavor. So you talked about the process of healing and providing healing to refugees that come to the house. What are some challenges you faced in providing that healing to refugees? Yeah. A lot, a lot of people think that the biggest challenge must be language. We've had people from maybe about 30 countries here. We don't speak the languages of people from 30 countries, but the uh, interior language, the social language really transcends those barriers and we've been able to have a wonderful rotation of volunteers and professionals who assist with translation. The biggest obstacle is probably trying to meet on an absolutely even hour by hour, not just day by day basis, the ever-evolving needs, the, the needs be, that become more apparent. When people first arrive and there's a sigh of relief that there's safety and security and warmth and clothing and food, once we get beyond that moment, so many other needs kick in. Uh, what is my future? How do I process the loss of my country, my religion, my culture? In most cases, family members. How do I process the trauma of war? Um, forming the kinds of services, providing the kinds of services, which is really an abstract way of, you know, being present every day mm-hmm. to, to those needs is what the biggest challenge is by all means. So meeting both physical needs immediately and then emotional needs afterwards. Right. Okay. Right. So you mentioned how you wanted to create not only a community of refugees, but also a community of volunteers coming to help out with your mission. What are some volunteers you've seen over the years? How important have they been? What countries have they come from, et cetera? Great. The, I would say, without a doubt, the most important volunteers are young people. Mm-hmm. They get it. They really get it. And the um, enthusiasm and energy, the openness to learn, but of course young people having tremendous insights to share, lots to teach us, We've been very lucky both with youth groups, small youth groups, but especially with uh, student volunteers and interns. Many, many have come from Germany, connected with the Waldorf School Movement, high school age kids there, or even slightly beyond high school who have come and have a, a heightened sensitivity for the 
needs of refugees, sometimes peers, their own age, of course, or younger wounded children that are here for hospital care or their caregivers or people seeking asylum. Um, the core of volunteers from our surrounding Ipswich community are indispensable. Their value to us is huge because they live in the community, they help introduce people to the community, and they also have a tremendous uh, intuition for what might be uh, a wonderful event for people to go to, a beautiful day to walk on the beach and so forth. Um, volunteers that help with garden maintenance, all of that form a kind of uh, core of community helpers without which we couldn't survive, I'm sure. Yeah, I think that's really interesting how you have both a core of local community helpers and you have this international community of volunteers from countries like Germany and other European countries in general. Um, so your husband, John, is a former Vietnam War veteran. Can you explain how his experience might have influenced uh, your work at House of Peace and how his experience with war might have impacted your work with yeah. House of Peace? Great. John was a Marine Corps officer who did not serve as a combat uh, soldier in Vietnam, but resigned his commission when, as a lawyer, he was convinced that in no way was this a just war, a war of defense of our country, but could see that it was a war really of oppression against the Vietnamese people. From that insight and enormous step back from military uh, service. John became greatly involved in the peace movement, especially the movement to abolish nuclear weapons, and in 1980 became uh, the founder with seven others of what's called the Plowshare Movement, disarming nuclear weapons in facilities, in this case General Electric in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, that manufacture these weapons. A lot grew from that. Everything, of course, grows from a life-changing experience of standing up with one's actual life on the line um, against the powers of militarism and economic exploitation that flows from that in this country. So when our destinies wove together and John joined the impulse to create this house of peace, he did so with a consciousness and experience of war, having traveled through many, many war zones with the monks and nuns of the Nipponza Mahoji Peace Order of uh, Japanese friends and with other delegations to war zones, he was able to bring this consciousness of war, of the violence of war, of the absolute devastation to humanity that war involves to the foundation of the House of Peace. Yeah, one thing I find very interesting about your organization is your involvement uh, with social is issues and activism, and it started with the Vietnam War. Can you explain other protests and activities you've taken part in over the years since then? Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, uh, we started in 1990. In August of that year, there was a so-called invasion of Kuwait by Iraq, followed by the horrific uh, war and attack and invasion in Iraq. So immediately, the question, what is the task of a house of peace in a time of war? The bombing of the Amaria shelter, February 14th, in 1991, was also a catalyst that um, drew us into uh, 
opposing that war with every possible strength and means at our disposal. We've also worked against the landmines, um, against the second Gulf War, the war against so-called terrorism. Um, but it's more what have we done positively to uphold human rights, civil rights. We've um, participated in whatever action we could, including John's creation of a pilgrimage to the prisons of Massachusetts, because that is a violent deed of racist incarceration of minority populations. Um, and we've also tried to stand with small groups, um, a wonderful group um, trying to advocate for children in a city school in Boston who are impacted by the homicide of a relative, a close friend, um, to stand for Mother's Day for Peace in Boston, to have our own um, women weeping pilgrimages through Boston Common and Public Garden to call to attention, to call people's attention to the devastation of the violence of war, which impacts above all women and children, both in huge uh, percentages of the international refugee population and in our own country in terms of those who are disenfranchised and underserved, underfed, unhoused in many, many parts of our country. Uh, clearly, your organization has taken on issues uh, ranging from social issues to refugee issues, um, which are pretty large issues in our culture and our world. Were there any times you felt discouraged in trying to solve these problems, and how did you overcome that? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, when um, the current administration in this country took power, and days later inaugurated the first travel ban, which was a ban against Muslim entry into this country. We felt, I, I guess, not so much discouraged. I suppose we felt just horrified and then thankfully empowered to do something about it because we had a child that was stranded here without his parents who were not allowed to, its father to re-enter the country with the mother and newborn sibling from Iraq. And then Iraq was taken off that list, but we had to fight and fight. And I would say that the situation at the border in this country, the inhumanity, the illegality, the building of borders and walls has been something we don't feel discouraged. I, I honestly could say there's no time for that. If, if we allow ourselves to be discouraged, we take away energy and take away precious, precious possibility to work for justice and for human values. So, um, it, it might be the extremes of refugee and immigrant oppression that we're in now that are really enlivening efforts. We, we do have lots and lots of people come here. We we host a monthly breakfast for Veterans for Peace, um, a biweekly meeting of the North Shore Coalition for Peace and Justice. Many people come just totally impaled by the enormity of the injustice that's happening right this minute. And to try to work to build community, 
to stand strong together through that and to put the focus on the people's suffering and not on our own suffering is very, very critical if we're going to have our voices be heard and to give voice to the voiceless. So you mentioned how injustice is growing towards refugees. Do you think that's just a select uh, group of people in power who are pushing this? Do you think this is a psychological change in America that's um, just being oppressive towards refugees? What do you think has created this injustice? I, th- I think that is an absolutely crucial question. It is such an important question. Sometimes we feel that the paradigm of human values has shifted, that in the past days, the justice system has been breached. It's not in danger of being impacted by a loss of the separation of powers. It has been breached. We feel that the scope of the oppression of immigrants and refugees is such. We now have a second travel ban, more countries added, more discrimination, especially against Muslims, that that represents a major shift. And the level of hatred and violence has escalated beyond anything we've ever experienced. So in one respect, we see it as a new beginning of a very uh, seriously threatening violation of our country's values, of human values, of spiritual values. On the other hand, perhaps, perhaps it is a hiatus, a horrible life-costing, internationally impacting hiatus that will help some people wake up. That's, that's what we're hoping and hoping and working for, that the extremes that are coming out of Washington, but also other capitals of the world, will so galvanize the conscience of people, especially young people, We know with the catastrophic climate changes that young people can see it. They know the the trajectory. They know that they're being forced to inherit horrible uh, sins of their fathers, mothers, but so too with human rights. And and so that's our hope, that, that this is a moment in our history of dreadful consequences, of huge suffering being... Uh, placed upon the shoulders of the most vulnerable people, and that somewhere the revolution of human awakening, compassion, will happen very soon, very soon. So it seems as though at the root of this injustice is fear and people's fear of others. So what can individuals do in our country at this divisive time to overcome that fear and develop their own empathy towards refugees? Well, the greatest antidote of fear is really love, and how do we bring that into practice? People need to get to know each other. People who fear people of different cultures, different colors, different languages need to get to know people. They need to break out of the media cocoon. They need to leave Facebook and meet people face-to-face. They need, we need, not they, we, in whatever ways we can, need to find our community we need to find the people we can work with, and we need to find the people for whom we think we are working and say, we're here to work with you. And that, I think, has always been uh, the idiom, love casts out all fear. Fear is the opposite. Uh, fear is what creates war. 
and and of course we know hatred comes so fast from fear. So to overcome that, there's no substitute for the person-to-person encounter. So moving to an international scope, what crisis and what region of the world right now is most concerning to you at the moment? Well, we live 24-7 year-round with people who are victims of the war in the Middle East. We have a mother and daughter right now from Iraq. We just bid farewell to... Uh, a severely burned child from Syria and her uncle were in touch with people from Afghanistan. We had a child not long ago from Gaza. So, of course, our thoughts turn daily to the Middle East, to the inferno, to the fact, I mean, we're worried about climate change taking away, as we must, as we must, the species of precious, precious vegetation and animals and birds We worry, too, about these wars that are taking away whole swaths of people. However, having said that, if if we have to isolate what we're worried most about, it's the immorality in our own country. Mm -hmm. People starving, starving and and, and dying of dehydration uh, on our borders. People being persecuted, prosecuted for leaving food and water in a desert. Um... We are really worried about the wall that's walling out from us a light, a life, a people that can change us in a way that we need. So, I mean, not to generalize, we're worried where anybody suffers. So moving to the crisis in Central America and thousands of migrants going from Central America up to the United States, what do you think the best solution would be to this issue, and what stance do you think the United States should take on this issue? We've always said that war creates refugees. Climate catastrophe creates refugees. So when we have $80 billion going into a wall, we we have the vision. Take that $80 billion, divide it between the peoples of El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Honduras, face up to, repent for, make restitution for the American, the United States wars that have created the disasters in those countries in most cases. Send that money with all the oversight that it would need to create a livable society in each of those countries. It's logical. It's logical. What is the cause of this exodus? And until we ever in this country go back to root causes, right back to the founding of this country, the massacre of the Native people, the enslavement of the African people, the wars, the oppression, the incredible catastrophe of the Vietnam War, and so on. If we go back to those root causes and try to create livable societies in the countries we've decimated, we may have people have the privilege and the right, it's a human right to stay, to live in their own country. Our experience is people don't want to be here. They would love to have a way of life in their own country that's safe and secure, prosperous for them and their families. So that's a kind of utopian vision maybe, but $80 billion for a cement wall. It's unrealistic. What kind of vision is that? Yeah. Uh, you brought up the climate crisis and climate change. 
Are you seeing an increase of refugees as a direct result of climate change at the moment? At the moment, in our particular uh, nucleus of work, no. We, we are still always getting people that have been under the guns, mm-hmm. more or less, literally, wounds, burns. So we have not been dealing with people. Earlier, our friends from Sudan, Somalia, they were more um, political refugees seeking mm-hmm. asylum because of persecution and imminent danger to them. Yep. So it, it hasn't been our main, our main focus yet, but mm-hmm. we can well imagine um, that it's everybody's focus. But do you think this issue could create conflict and war? Because uh, you look at a situation like Syria, and a lot of people have attributed climate change and people not being able to grow their crops as a reason why they moved to the cities and why the situation escalated in Syria. Do you think that's going to be a pattern we'll see more in the future? Yes. Very technically speaking, of course, where you have countries, some of them small, that have been uh, bombed Mm-hmm. with a weaponry that um, creates radioactive environments, toxic environments. We've had many children here who have been victims of depleted uranium poisoning from Iraq, say. So we know that the ordinance in these countries alone, I mean, people don't even think about that, but the ordinance alone has created a climate catastrophe, as well as I was on the phone with somebody from Syria yesterday living nearby who who was this was in daily touch and talking about 700,000 people that are being funneled toward the Turkish border which will not take them so you have large concentrations of people all around the world but as you mentioned Syria who have lost their land whose land is no longer uh, arable um, whose methods of um, agricultural work have been killed off by the methods of war, yes, enormous shifts in um, how food is grown, where food is grown, um, how that affects soil, how that affects nutrition. Um, We know that the climate and the weapons of war, the facts of war, nuclear um, possibilities, nuclear power, nuclear weapons, nuclear testing, all of this is connected, yes. Moving back to your organization, you've mentioned to me in the past on how you've received hours notice that a refugee family was coming to the United States. Can you talk about uh, any difficulties you faced in your organization needing to be on their feet constantly and reacting to the situation at hand? Well, flexibility is the main requirement, I think, of life at the House of Peace at one of the main requirements of, un, what is it, unconditional hospitality means be ready. And the only way that we've found to try to meet that need is to have a rhythm to our life that's strong enough and uh, realistic enough that it can absorb the shocks of sudden arrivals, sudden departures, sudden illnesses. Um, because we have adults with some special needs living with us, this rhythm of meals together, of 
um, you know, seeing each other on a daily basis in a rhythmical way is so crucial that that kind of sustains us so that when something happens, which it often does, that rhythm can carry on and people are able to welcome into it um, the uh, new arrivals or the child suddenly take it to the hospital or uh, the wonderful things of family members suddenly arriving. That doesn't happen too much anymore. Um, so, yes, it's definitely a big challenge, um, a need, but it's one that we've tried to work with in a creative community way over the years. What would you say to younger people like myself and people in general who are passionate about refugee issues? How can they uh, help? How can they help both in their communities and even on an international scale? Well, I think what you're doing, taking students into your school Mm -hmm. and having students in your school study the issues of refugee face-to-face, not in the abstract, but in the biographies of other kids you either have in the school or that you are beginning to know. There's no substitute for that, as we said before. Relationship is the core of everything. So I think that that you're really in a situation of a creative response to that. And at the same time, to um, be very uh, demanding of the media and whatever forms of gaining information that you use, that the truth be told that the truth of what the immigrant life is like, that the truth of what the refugee is experiencing in the world right now, that you not rely on social media mm-hmm. in a way that becomes antisocial. Yeah. No substitute for meeting people who tell you their own stories. Biography is the rhythm of the whole thing. It's the, it's the, the flow of human lives. And I think what you're doing at your school is a major, major contribution to refugee awareness. What is it you wish that people in this country understood about refugees and understood about immigrants? Above all, the refugees, like each one of us, each refugee is a person. Each refugee is a person. And that we not trap a person in a label, that each human being has rights as well as responsibilities. And what I would wish is that every single person recognizes in the other person an equal, a brother, a sister, who has the same rights, who has tremendous gifts, who suffers weaknesses, and who needs the other the way each of us needs the other. That people would look one person to the other person and experience that basic human longing to create community, to get to know the other to put oneself in the position of the other, because it's only by doing that that we'll really ultimately know ourselves. Finally, what can listeners do to help your mission and to help the House of Peace? Well, we we rely on a mantle, a cloak around this big old house of people who keep us in their thoughts and their prayers constantly. We really, really experience the good thoughts of others. It's not by any means a platitude or an abstract. People who send their strong good wishes, strong thoughts to us, keep us afloat. Those who put something in an envelope from time to time, the littlest uh, contribution 
is gold to us because it it enhances this sheath of conscious solidarity, accompaniment around us, that people will look at who lives here and marvel in terms of those who have come from other countries, marvel at their resilience and that they would make every place in their lives available to learn the lesson the refugee has to teach. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you. A big thanks to Carrie Schuchert for joining us on our podcast. If you'd like to see how you can help their organization, visit their website at www.houseofpeaceinc.org. If you'd like to support the Seeking Refuge podcast, make sure you go to wartimmate.org and donate to our organization. Make sure you subscribe to the Seeking Refuge podcast and tune in next week for our next episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you.